Any of you Disney freaks know what line is next? And who could ever learn to love a beast? My son at the age of eight had that whole movie completely memorized. Um, and I know that makes me a bad parent, but we're talking about shame today, so I'm letting go of it. <laughs> Actually, in addition to shame, we're talking about love stories. Your love stories, my love stories, my dog's love stories, the beast love story. There is nothing more important than our love stories because there's nothing more important than love. And I thought it would be a good idea to pair Disney with the Bible because the Bible has a lot to say about love. So let's take a look at a few verses. In Colossians 3, it says, Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. And from John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So love is a big theme in the Bible. The most important commandment is to love God, and the second is like it, to love our neighbors. And so I've been looking through the Bible to really ask myself specifically, what does the Bible say about love? Why are we to love? And what I realized, that there aren't a lot of really specific, um, emphatic reasons why we are to love. Um, there's some really good reasons, like it heals, it transforms people, um, it is important, and we need to love because God loves us. It creates harmony, it covers sin, so there's some good reasons, but it seems like there should be a big sales job, because we've seen the transforming power of love. So it seems like there would just be like some big noise in the Bible about why we're supposed to do this. And it's just sort of subtle all the way through. It's there. And we know that the greatest of faith, hope, and love is love. And that's clear, but it just doesn't seem like they're selling it. Um, so I wanted to think about that a while. And what I figured out, this is my take on it, there's really one big reason why it doesn't approach love that way. And it's found in 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So God is love. He doesn't just love you. He isn't just loving, he is love. So the call to love emanates from the very identity of our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living in an eternal love relationship. So I think the reason the Bible doesn't get more specific is it's kind of like, duh, uh, of course, love. And so I'm taking it as that. Like, we, we can sell it because we know. Russian author Leo Tolstoy, I think, did a great job of capturing how important love is. He said, love is life. All, everything that I understand, I understand only because I love. Everything is, everything exists only because I love. Everything is united by it alone. Love is God and to die means that I, a particle of love, shall return to the general and eternal source. So God is love and we are created in the image of God and so we all carry a piece or a particle of this love of God with us, which is really cool. To image God means that we love. This is what it means to bear the image of God. I'm gonna tell a little story to illustrate the point. This is about my, what, grand dog? My daughter and son-in-law's dog. It's an Australian shepherd named Thisbe, and this dog 
chases balls like nothing I have ever seen. This dog will chase a ball if you get it 30 yards. It will chase a ball if you get it 10 yards. And every time it comes back and it wants you to throw it again, it would do it for days. If I woke it up at three in the morning and said, you want to go chase a ball? It'd be like, yeah. If I get annoyed with it a little bit, I start toying with it and I like throw the ball three feet and she jumps on it and she brings it back. And so she is not discriminating. Any ball, although she's stealing my tennis balls. I have a little bit of an issue with this. She chases balls. It's what she does. It's who she is. And so if one day she stopped chasing balls, then we would be like, something's wrong. Something's broken about Thisbe. So here's where the parallel comes in. If we are God's image bearers, if that is how we were created, if it's what we were created for, to image a God who is love, then if we are not living a life of love, then we are broken, then something is wrong. We were created to love. We were created for love. And we know that humanity is broken, right? It's been broken since the fall. We've chosen to wander away from God in so many ways. And our brokenness is, is showing up in really clear ways when we look at the state of our love relationships. And I'm not talking about just the state of marriages. I'm talking about the state of every relationship where we enter into to create harmony and to love unconditionally and to bring agape love, that it's a struggle. We are broken. Something is wrong. And this is why taking a look at love stories, at our love stories, is really important. Does our story show brokenness? Can we learn from our love story that while some things are going right, other things are not? And again, I'm not just talking about your marriage. That's a big deal. But I'm talking about your relationship with your children and your neighbors and all of the people that we're called to love. I imagine that if I asked you guys, well, let me just ask you, how many of you feel like your life stories are epic? Like Disney should make a movie about your epic life story. Would it, would it be a snoozer? Would it be a little bit too exciting? Would it be super boring? <laughs> um, here's the deal. Your life story is epic because you are created to image the God of the universe that created everything. And he put that love inside you and said, go out and love people. And no story is bigger. You image God, the God of love, the God who is love, and you go out and bring that to the world. You are the star of a really epic love story. Now, sometimes it's got some down moments. It's got some times when someone needs to take a bathroom break. It's got some times that are more tragic than anything else. It's got some humor. But your story is an epic love story. But sometimes when we press pause on that story and look into it, um, we really need to look at the most important plot point, which is how is the quest for love? How is the quest for loving others going? Because your life today, at this moment, is a reflection of how well that journey of love has gone since you were born. You bring all of that along with you. And that's your story today. Psychiatrist Dr. Kurt Thompson says, rather poetically, I think, we are born looking for someone who is looking for us. We are born looking for someone who is looking for us. For some of us, that person was looking at us with eyes of love the moment we were born. And we've since found many others looking for us who love us. And it's been a natural response to love them back, whether it's parents, friends, spouses. But for others, not so much. For some, Beauty and the Beast is a cute story that brings back childhood memories. And for others, you resonate with this life of lost and isolation, 
loss and isolation that the beast experiences. And you may resonate with his reality that he made one bad mistake and it took everything away from him. So his quest for love is not going well. He's alone. He has no love for anyone. He doesn't believe he will ever be loved. And if you watch this clip here, you'll see that he's not very lovable. So that is one angry beast. And some of you can maybe identify with that level of anger in yourselves or others that you know. He's lonely, he's grouchy, he's in a perpetually bad mood, he feels hopeless. And so I thought it would be a good idea to play armchair psychologist for the beast today. And I'm gonna dig deep into his psyche and I'm gonna diagnose him with a serious case of shame. Now Greg talked about shame um, not too long ago. But I think shame is so significant that we could preach on it every single week and not get quite to the bottom of it. And I know that some of you here agree with me, but you're too ashamed to admit it, and that's okay. <laughs> I, well, okay, so let's start out by talking about what shame is. I have a good definition from Brene Brown. If you haven't read her, you should check out her books. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging, unworthy of love and belonging because we're flawed. So this is the beast, he's flawed. He perfectly represents shame. He's unhappy, he's lashing out at anyone who tries to speak with him. And I think if we could dig down and hear those voices in his head, we'd hear them say, you turn that old woman away. That is the worst mistake you ever made. You are ugly, you are not looking good. Nobody is ever gonna love you. You are unworthy of love. This is what the voice of shame is saying to the beast. And the voice of shame has different messages for each of us here. And maybe some of you hear it really loud and clear all the time, and maybe some of you heard this voice, but you just didn't know what it is. So let me tell you that a voice inside your head that's telling you all the things that are wrong with you and telling you those things make you unlovable, that's the voice of shame. Why do we listen to this voice? We listen to it, we take it seriously, and I'll tell you why I think it is. I think it's because the voice of shame has enough truth in it it has evidence. So it says, you were fired from your job, you are not a good parent, your children aren't turning out well, you've gained weight, your house is a mess. And because there might be some truth in some of those things, we say, yeah, I'm not lovable. I do have all those things wrong with me. But the, the issue is that, so if my house is messy, then my house is messy. But nobody gets to say to me, I'm a bad person, my, and my house is messy. Nobody gets to say to me, I'm a bad person because my house is messy. The voice of shame takes this little bit of truth and it twists it so that even if it's something that you were a victim of, if you were abused and you feel shame about it because this voice of shame is saying, well, you did something, you did something to deserve that. You were at least a little bit at fault. So we all carry shame, we all have this voice. I'm gonna tell you my story of shame from the age of five. Um, I may have told this before, but it's my story of smoking a cigarette butt at the age of five. And Here's the deal, I was outside with some older neighborhood girls, the cool girls, at five I was very aware of the, their status, and we were in the garage across the street from my house and it was after dark, and a car went by and some guy threw a cigarette butt out the window. And one of the girls ran and got it and said, we're gonna smoke this cigarette butt. And I was in a quandary, because I was in a church that basically said, people who smoke cigarettes are not Christians, and Christians do not smoke cigarettes. There was no overlap. 
And so I had that going on, and then I had the cool girls who I wanted to think I was cool too. And so I have the cool girls, and I have losing my salvation. And so I chose the cool girls, <laughs> and I smoked the cigarette, but, but I didn't inhale. <laughs> so then I realized I wasn't a Christian anymore. I'm five, okay? Just give me a break in terms of my ability to be theologically astute. So first, yes, let's laugh about how ridiculous it is, because it is. But I walked around for three years with this secret, from five to eight, and there was a constant, uninterrupted voice inside my head telling me that whole time that Jesus was mad and that I had made such a huge mistake that I could not go to heaven. And I couldn't tell anybody because shame says you definitely can't tell anybody. It's a total disruptor of love. It always says, well, maybe they love you now, but if they knew X, Y, Z, they would not love you. Maybe Jesus loved you yesterday, but now that you smoked that cigarette, but he does not love you, even if you did not inhale. Jesus didn't love me anymore. It's also a destroyer of joy, shame is. When we live in shame, every time we start having fun, the voice comes back and says, well, it looks like you're having fun, but think about this awful thing. I remember playing with friends, being on vacation, watching my favorite TV show, and this voice interrupting my joy saying, I see you're having fun on this beach, but don't forget about that cigarette. So I carried this with me for so long, and it was just destroying me, destroying my ability to receive love, destroying my joy. So I, I started saying, I gotta, I gotta tell my mom. I've just gotta do it, I gotta get it out. I'm gonna explode if I don't tell my mom. So finally we're riding in the car, and I got up my nerve, and I said, hey mom, here's what happened with the cool girls across the street when I was five. I smoked a cigarette butt. And she said, kids do such silly things. And I was like, my head is blowing off. Like that was not what I expected. I expected more like, well, at least we can enjoy your presence while we're here on earth before you burn in hell for eternity. I could not believe it. I could not believe it. So I thought I should call my mom and talk about the cigarette butt story this week. So I called her, and she didn't remember the cigarette butt story. <laughs> this is what happens with shame a lot. The voice makes it this big, and the person who loves it says, it doesn't matter. You're okay. I love you. It's a big deal. In the context, though, of this is how powerful shame is. So I'm talking to my mom about the shame of the cigarette butt, and she remembered that she... When my oldest brother was a senior in high school, he was playing with his, in his final football game, and all the parents were supposed to be there to go out on the field and honor their children. And I think my mom maybe had just delivered her sixth child, and she didn't, couldn't make it to the football game, and so she missed the football game and then found out that no other kid didn't have their parents with them at the football game. And while my mom is telling me the story, she's getting emotional and starting to cry. And this is over 45 years ago. She successfully raised six children and the voice of shame is still saying, but you aren't really a good parent. Really, you aren't. Because if you were, you would have been at that football game. I don't care how many kids you had. That's what the voice of shame says. So I preached a little sermon to my mom. I took her to Romans 8 and I said, there is therefore now no condemnation, mom, for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. No condemnation, set you free. This is what happened when I told my mom in the car. 
You are not condemned and you are set free. And I felt that freedom. I've never smoked another cigarette again. <laughs> Remember that we're talking about shame in the context of our need to be loved. We're born looking for someone who's looking for love, but when we live in shame, we actually turn away from others because we don't think we deserve love. We're afraid to have them really know us. Shame is a harbinger of abandonment. There's something wrong with me, and when you find out what it is, you're going to leave. Interestingly, researchers say that we don't feel guilt until the age of five or six, but we feel shame as early as 15 months. Guilt says, I did something bad. And it's a helpful voice, because somebody needs to tell you when you're messing up. But shame says, you are bad. You are a bad person. You are bad to the core. And that's just a lie from the pit of hell. So we have this voice inside us telling us that we're bad and it's giving us evidence that seems credible and it's doing it over and over and over and over for three days, three months, three weeks, three years, our whole life. And here's one reason we avoid dealing with it because in order to deal with it, we have to feel it. We have to feel it on the way to being healed. And really, right, feeling it and talking about it is the last thing we want to do. That's why I didn't tell my mom for three years, because I don't want to feel this, I don't want to say it out loud, I don't want to talk about it, I don't want to risk being abandoned. Sometimes we finally do it, like I did, and it goes well. We name it and say it out loud to someone and ask for help and prayer and healing, and it goes well. But sometimes, in the midst of trying to do it, we turn to other unhelpful things, like alcohol and shopping and other addictions. Because I think I can silence this voice if I just get high enough, if I just get drunk enough. But here's the deal, whether we're trying to, however we're trying to silence it, shame is like that carnival game whack-a-mole, you know, where, yeah. I always love that where you beat the mole on the head and then another one comes out of, out of a different hole and then you hit that one and it goes on and on. This is how shame is because usually we have more than just one cigarette butt story, right? We got a lot of stories. So I silenced that story. My mom he helped me heal and I got over it and I was done with it. But then there was something else over here at some point saying, yeah, but this, yeah, but this. And that's what shame does, yeah, but this. Here's how this relates to love. Shame and transforming love cannot coexist. The voice of shame says in various ways, you are not worthy of love. And the voice of love says, I love you no matter what. And we all have to pick which one we're going to listen to. Truth spoken in love causes us to turn toward one another, to look in the eye, to deal with things. And shame causes us to turn away and hide. And we have to choose which of those things we're gonna do. I'm going to tell you a story about how shame can take root at a really young age through no one's intention. So you're four years old and you run through the living room with a plastic bat and you knock over mom's vase and it breaks into a million pieces. And what does mom do? She yells at you. Um, that's what all parents or all the ones I've ever seen would do. Um, and maybe mom just yells a little bit and says, ah, oh, stop it, why are you running through living with a bat? Go upstairs. Or maybe mom makes it a really big deal and says things like, you're just like your father and I've told you a hundred times and you never do what you're told and I'm so disappointed in you. And says a lot of really hurtful things. But either way, you are sent to your room with this bleh, and you get under your covers and you cry and you hide. And at dinner time, mom calls you to the table and no one says anything about the vase, um, but you can tell mom is still kind of upset. Now that's one thing that happens, 
No one talks about the vase and you kind of move on and think, well, that was a bad day, but I'm just going to let go of it. Or there's another kind of household where mom talks about the vase 10 times a day for the next five years. Constant, constant, constant. Okay, either way, there's shame here. And here's why. Because the thing that is missing in this whole exchange is connection. So let's talk about another way the story could play out. After you've been in your room for a while, mom could come up and say, I am so sorry for yelling. That was an important vase because it was Aunt Lucy, Lucy's vase, and Aunt Lucy died last year, and it was really important to me. But I know you didn't break it on purpose, and I love you far more than I could ever love a vase. But let's just agree you're not going to run through the living room with a plastic bat anymore. This kind of interaction is powerful, and it's healing, and it's life-changing and it kills shame. Because here's what happened. The parent established a connection with the child that makes him or her want to do and be better. Now I looked in my mom's eyes and I saw that I hurt her, and I saw that she loves me, and I'm never gonna run through the living room with a plastic bat. But if all you get is the correction and the shame, it, ch- it wrecks your life. That voice of shame gets louder and louder and then other things are added on. And here's what happens in a household is we have parents who say, wow, I'm a really bad parent because I missed that football game and then I yelled at my kid about the vase and then the kid says, I broke my mom's vase and so I'm horrible and the other kid says, I smoked a cigarette butt and I'm horrible and no one is talking about any of this. We have these whole areas in our life where we're just hiding and we're not looking up and we're not talking and we're not connecting. In order to correct, we have to connect. And that's not just with kids. Although if you're a parent of young children, I would advise that you do this. But this is in any relationship. If you need to yell at your husband and you do it and maybe you say some things you shouldn't, then follow it up with a connection that heals, that looks in the eye, that takes the shame away. Amen. So, yes, that's what. We're killing shame right here. Okay, so... Here's an interesting thing. In the new Beauty and the Beast, which is currently playing at the plaza for just $3 a ticket. (laughs) Um, Yeah, shameless plug. So, and there's popcorn and drink deals too. So over there, they're showing the new one. And in the new one, it gives a little background on the beast. And it says the reason he's cruel is because his father was cruel. So he had some stuff going on in his household as well. There was shame operating there. But let's take a look at his story as things start looking up for him. Something starts to break through. What do you think it was? Love. Let's look at it. So... This movie is really about the transforming power of love. Don't you love the part where the little birdies are all perched all over him and that yellow dress, it's just so special. He's being transformed. We are watching the transformation of a beast. It's amazing. He knew he had to find someone to love him before the final petal fell. And this beautiful girl shows up and does he like, oh good, this is the one. No, he yells at her and he screams at her. He's looking for someone who's looking for him, but when she shows up, he's mean because he's been hurt. Shame said, that girl is not here for you, let me just say. And interestingly, this theme of hiding shows up in the Old and New Testaments. Think about Adam and Eve. So they were told not to eat of the fruit of a certain tree, and then they did, and do you remember what they did next? They hid. From Genesis, we see The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? God is saying. 
And Adam's answer is basically, I'm hiding because I'm ashamed. God already knew that they disobeyed. This was not a secret from him. He's not dependent. His love for us is not dependent on us behaving and doing the right thing all the time. Now let's skip ahead to the New Testament and think about how Jesus came looking for us so that he could show his love for us. The narrative in the church and many cultures is that really Jesus is mostly interested in the things that we're doing wrong. We, we actually attribute the voice of shame sometimes to Jesus telling us, you did wrong, you did wrong, you did wrong. That is not the voice of Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the church sometimes says, well, he may forgive you, he never forgets. And that's what the voice of shame is. It just keeps saying it over and over. But here's the good news of the New Testament. God came in Jesus to find you, to heal you, to love you, to transform you, Amen. not to shame you. We hide from that because we know that even if we don't tell anyone else, right, God already knows our shameful secrets. And so we hide. We, it's like, yeah, I know he's up there somewhere and he knows, but I'm just not going to look at him. It's terrifying when you realize someone knows all my garbage. But instead of it being terrifying, I have a suggestion about a better way to look at it. Because to be fully lo loved and to fully love others requires that we are fully known. So what happens if we keep, say, seven shameful secrets and we get into some sort of friendship or relationship and the person says, I really love you. Inside your head, like, you love me, but there's seven secrets here that you do not know. And if you get to a point with someone where your seven secrets are known, then you can feel fully loved because they know all of you. And that's who Jesus is right now. He knows all seven of your secrets. And he loves you. The hardest part is already done with God. We don't need to hide. He knows our shame. Shame tries to cancel that love, but love is the only force powerful enough to cancel shame. Now, we have the wonderful ending with the beast. Do you guys know what's going to happen? Let's check. They stopped just short of the kiss. It's censorship, I tell you. <laughs> but love wins, right? He's utterly and completely transformed. And they live happily ever after. We know it. So... I want to share with you, related to utter transformation, what the original motivation for the sermon was, and it's about another dog. Uh, that's another theme of the day. So I want to talk, tell you about my dog that I got last year. We call her the pig, and it's because she looks like a pig, and she acts like a pig, and she sounds like a pig, which you'll see in just a minute. So when we got her, she was two. She had a couple of litters of puppies that had birth defects, and so they wanted to get rid of this dog. The dog, as far as I know, lived in the basement with a bunch of other breeding dogs and puppies. And when we got her, she didn't bark. She didn't play. She stayed six inches away from me. She couldn't climb stairs. She wasn't potty trained. She was out of shape. She peed when she got nervous, and she was always nervous. Um, and I'm a dog lover, so I love a challenge. And I was like, we can do this, pig. So, and my husband was like, no, you can't. So I got this two-year-old pig and I sat with her panting on my lap for two straight days, like the whole day. 
She was so nervous and she was so scared and I loved her so much even then. So I hugged her so much. I squeezed her till her head popped off. I brought her into bed even though she snored like nothing you've ever heard. I carried her up and down the stairs. She was 30 pounds and she couldn't do stairs and I have four flights of stairs in my house. And for almost two months I carried her up and down the stairs everywhere because if I left her then she peed. So it was just this, it was like a full-time job. I treated her like my really big fat baby and I carried her all around and I loved her so much and three months after we got her she started to change I had finally taught her to do stairs she lost weight probably from running up and down the stairs she she got potty trained mostly um, and one day she just started barking and I'm telling you it was just the cutest little bark not a lot of barking just the perfect amount she started carrying squeaky toys around and she started to dance so she stood on her back legs when I would get home. Well, I'm not going to do it. She would hop around. It would not be cute if I did it. I got her a tutu. She has a little pink tutu, and she stands on her back legs. Um, yeah, that went over really good with my husband, Dave. So <laughs> it's the eye roll. You know the eye roll. So I've got a video from this new dance that she created. I've never seen another dog do this from about eight months after we got her. It was 10 below zero out. She does not like the cold, and so she was arguing with me and doing a dance. I'll show you. Let's go outside. Come on. Come on Doggy. She got really sassy. I have about 150 other videos like that if anybody's interested. <laughs> so I'm not trying to say the pig felt shame. Maybe she wondered why she had to stay in the basement and not on the bed with people. Maybe she thought I'm overweight and so they don't like me. Who knows? But regardless, she definitely did not feel a sense of home and belonging in her first two years of life. And eight months of me smothering her to death almost changed her into a different animal. She went from a depressed dog to a dancing pig, and I think that's quite the transformation. So we have the beast and his fairy tale, and we have the pig and her fairy tale, and the stories are both quite transformational. But there are a lot of people who are not living a fairy tale. They're lonely and isolated like the beast. They don't see an end in sight. They're still looking for someone who's looking for them. So what do we do about this? This question is why I almost chose a different movie, a different topic, a different sermon, because that is a really hard question. If we're all created for love and we're not being loved, then what comes next? Too many people show up to church services every week and leave without experiencing good news. They don't see anyone looking for them or even noticing them. And I think an issue in churches is that the church also corrects without connecting, right? So if you just walk in and you hear a sermon about all the things you're doing wrong and there's no connection made, you leave feeling worse than you did when you came. It happens a lot. A person at any age who has really never felt loved is going to bear the scars of that, whether it's problems with the parent or partners or friends. They've just got into adulthood and never really felt loved. And there's scars there and we've seen it. Has anyone ever met someone who's difficult to love? I'm sure nobody in this room is difficult to love, but people can be difficult to love. 
because they haven't received love, and so they build walls and they isolate and lash out. And here's the irony of that, is that you try to love them, and so they lash out because they haven't received love. So you see, people get stuck in that cycle. And there's no easy fixes, but here's what I wanna say to you today. There are really difficult fixes. And I think that people who are kingdom people and committed to the life of love found in Jesus Christ are not looking to have it easy, right? We're looking to make a difference. And there's no way we can make a bigger difference than engaging the difficult task of love, the really difficult task of love at times. It's the most important work we can ever do. And these tasks are for all of us. Because this is not an individual problem, it's a societal problem and it's a church problem. But they help us return to what we're created to be. If you can work really, really, really hard at something that's difficult and it causes you to be fully what God created you to be, that's worth it, that's worthwhile. And if it transforms others through the love of God in the process, that's huge. We are image bearers of the God who is love. So let's start to heal that broken part of us that was made to love originally. So I wanna give you a few difficult things to do related to shame and love, starting with for people who need to be loved. I'm gonna give you some ideas, and none of these are easy. The first one is to name your shame. So I got in the car with my mom, and I said, here's shame that I've been carrying. And in that case, it was an easy fix, but I have to tell you, saying it took me three years. That was not easy. Don't let shame have power over you. Embrace your brokenness. Embrace the things you're still working on. The, the deal is, here's what Jesus does. Is he takes those things off of us, our failures and our mistakes, and he takes them. And what shame says is, go take them back. Okay, that's not good advice. How about we just leave them with Jesus? Let's name it and let's leave it there. So first, name your shame. Second, come out of hiding. If I have not been loved and I'm walking through life like this, am I gonna see someone who's looking for me? Am I gonna see someone? I'm not. I have to look up. Come out of hiding. What if the person that you've been looking for is looking for you and you walk right past him on the sidewalk? Shame keeps your head down. Here's why this is difficult. Dr. Kurt Thompson again. The more of me that is exposed to another, the greater will be my wounding when I'm betrayed. We deeply long for connection to be seen and known for who we are without rejection, but we are terrified of the vulnerability. So we have to look up and come out of hiding, but when we do that, we make ourselves vulnerable. We wanna be known in love, but that requires we take a risk. The lifelong game of hide and seek that so many of us are playing just needs to end because the life we're called to is a life of being found. Come out of hiding. So first, name your shame. Second, come out of hiding. Third, let Jesus love you. And this one is said in churches over the course of Every single week, over the course of the United States, everywhere, everybody's always saying, let Jesus love you. Here's how it relates to shame. Jesus is the original person who's looking for you. And it's no small thing. And he wants to bust that shame wide open. Adam and Eve were in the garden and God was looking for them, even though he knew what they did. Jesus is trying to love you and get into your life, even though he knows what you've done. He came here because we were a bit of a mess. He didn't come because he thought, wow, it's going awesome down there, I'm gonna join the party. He came looking for us in our brokenness so that he could love and forgive and heal. And that includes you. So name your shame, come out of hiding, let Jesus love you. And then if you're one of the fortunate people who was born with people looking for you and went through life and have been, had a great experience with your families and everybody around and you feel really loved, I got a job for you too. And this is also not 
easy, right? But you want, you are ready. You have been so loved that you are ready for a difficult task that Jesus has given you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to love as an act of war against shame. And war is hard and it costs you something and it can be painful. I believe that one of the hardest things we can do is love someone who is difficult to love. Like, wouldn't we rather just give them money? Wouldn't we, ra- I mean, anything, right? Just let me just give you a couple bucks. Let me, I'll give you $2,000 if I don't have to love you. I mean, that's how it feels sometimes. It is really, really difficult. But we need to embrace our brothers and sisters who are struggling. I don't want anybody to walk into this church or really any other church and leave and say, nobody found me, nobody was looking for me. I want them always to find that this is the place where the love of God dwells and that the people of God love like nobody else. That should be the story the world is telling about the church. Love heals shame. It's the only thing that does. But we can't love that way unless we're receiving the love of God. So start there. We need to receive the love of God and pass it on. Let's be a community that looks for people who have not been found. In this room and in our groups and in our families. Think of that difficult person, that lonely person who's lashing out and who's had a hard life and think of the transforming power of love like with the beast and with the pig dog. It makes a difference, right? The transformation, it doesn't happen overnight, I'm just saying. It's a worthwhile investment and it radically changes lives. And this is the difficult task that we have been given when we are kingdom people. We were created in the image of God who is love and we're called to love and it's been broken and we are going to fix it through the power of God. We're going to point people who are struggling to a God who has always been looking for them. And we are going to be people who live that out in the name of Jesus. We are the hands and feet. Let's do it. God, help us to be people who are your image bearers in ways that the world has never seen. Help us to love the people around us who are difficult. Help us to point them to you. Help us, th- help us to show them your love. I just pray for transformation. I pray for transformation for people who need to reach out and do a difficult thing. I pray for transformation for people who have not felt loved. I just pray that we would be a place of love, that we would be people of love. Please do that in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you and come for prayer.